إن الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور أنفسنا وسيئات أعمالنا من يهديه الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له وأشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له وأشهد أن محمدا عبده ورسوله أما بعد Today then we'll begin with the chapter Bab Qawlillahi Ta'ala Lima Khalaqtu Biyadayya In this section now for a while we've been talking about the names and attributes of Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala Al-Asma'u Wa-Sifat The names and attributes of Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala A while back we talked about some of the principles the principles that are needed in order to understand the names and attributes properly without falling into deviations, falling into misunderstandings. So some of those principles in brief were that as Ahlus Sunnah, we affirm whatever Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has affirmed for himself in the Qur'an. That is something clear. We affirm everything Allah has affirmed for himself in the Quran. That is the speech of Allah. And Allah is more knowledgeable of himself than us. And what Allah has mentioned in the Quran about himself, then we affirm. That is point number one, very simply. Also, we affirm Whatever the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wasallam informs us of regarding Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Affirmation of what is in the Quran and what is in the authentic sunnah, that is something clear. Nobody can say we're not going to affirm what's in the Quran or the sunnah. So we affirm what Allah has said of himself in the Quran and what the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wasallam has said about Allah in the Sunnah. Also, we negate what Allah has negated from Himself and what the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wasallam has negated from Allah in the Sunnah. That opening clause should be clear. We affirm whatever Allah has affirmed for himself and we negate whatever Allah has negated from himself. We affirm whatever Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam has affirmed in the sunnah for Allah and we negate what the messenger sallallahu alayhi wasallam has negated from Allah in the sunnah. Then on top of that, with our belief the belief of Ahlul Sunnah wal Jama'ah. We do not perform any type of ta'til, which is a nullification of the names and attributes, to reject any of the names and attributes. We do not reject or nullify, invalidate any of the names and attributes of Allah. We affirm, as we've just said, Neither do we perform tahrif. Neither do we begin to try and distort and change and alter the names and attributes of Allah as they have been mentioned to something else to suit ourselves. We do not distort or alter or change the names and attributes of Allah as they've been mentioned in the sunnah in the Quran. Thirdly, we do not perform takif. We don't try and give descriptions to the names and attributes of Allah from ourselves. We do not try to imagine descriptions and details for the names and attributes of Allah that Allah has mentioned in the Quran or the Sunnah. And fourthly, we do not Tamthil is the better word. 
because that is the word used in the Quran. We do not perform tamthil, which is comparison of Allah to creation. We never compare the names and attributes of Allah to creation. There is no resemblance between the Creator and the creation ever. So when we talk about the names and attributes of Allah, then never imagine that we are trying to imagine what Allah looks like, or that we can imagine what Allah looks like, or that we can even imagine and give some description in our minds as to what these attributes are like in their details. That does not exist. We do not go into that. We can only affirm what Allah has affirmed. Beyond that, the details of it and the descriptions of it and the specifics of it and the imagination of it, that is not what has been placed upon us as a responsibility in worship. Allah has not placed a burden upon us to describe and imagine the names and attributes of Allah. That is not a burden placed upon us. And that is not something we must delve into at all anyway. It would be innovation for a person to delve into that. That Allah says he has X, Y, and Z attribute. Those attributes surely, they must be like the attributes of creation. That is not the case. The attributes of Allah, we affirm them. But we do not compare them to creation. And we mention briefly because... Linguistically, words, you can use the same word, but the meanings can be multiple. So you use the word leg, and leg can have multiple meanings. The leg of an elephant is completely different to the leg of an ant, yet they are both called legs. That is a leg and this is a leg. Yet they are completely different in their descriptions, completely. The leg of a giraffe, the leg of a spider, the leg of a chicken, the leg of a lion. They are all legs, yet the descriptions of them are completely different. The size, the length, the strength, the muscle mass, everything different. The descriptions are completely different, yet the word is the same. So when we say the word leg... We have an understanding of what the word leg is. But you cannot and do not have the ability to describe it until you know which leg we're talking about. If I now say to you, all of the animals we just be mentioning, describe the leg. Which one? The leg of the elephant or the leg of the ant? The leg of the chicken? The leg of the, the camel? The horse? Which one? You cannot describe it. Even though the word leg has some recognition with you. The word leg has something with you. An understanding of it. But the details and the descriptions of it, it can be different. Because that word can be used for multiple different descriptions. If that is the case in creation, in creation we can use the same word Yet the descriptions can be vast and varied, different completely, even though it's the same word. Then what therefore of the amount of difference there will be if that word is used to mention one of the attributes of Allah? For example, we've been talking about which attribute of Allah? Eyes. So now, is there any resemblance, any comparison, any imagination, any description to the eyes of Allah and what we have in creation? None whatsoever and it is incorrect for you to even think that there is or to imagine there is. So in creation a word can be used but the meanings are so vast and varied. What therefore do you think is going to be the level of variation therefore between the creator and the creation if the same word is used to describe an attribute 
or to mention an attribute. Of course, the difference will be far, far greater. It is not something comparable. It is not something resemblant. So when we mention these names and attributes of Allah, you have to remember there is no resemblance to creation when we use words that you typically understand in creation to mean something what we see. They do not mean the same thing. We've been talking about the eyes of Allah. We are not talking about these eyes. We're not talking about the eyes of any other animals or any other living being. The eyes are not comparable to the eyes of creation. When we talk about other names and attributes of Allah, you have to remember those rules. You have to remember those principles because that is the only way to be able to understand the names and attributes of Allah. This is the field, the subject, where so much differing and splitting occurred from the people of innovation who went astray. When those groups of innovation appeared, one of their greatest errors and greatest issues was in the subject of names and attributes. And they exist up until this day now. They exist up until this day now. These groups who claim to be Ahlu Sunnah wal Jama'ah and they're upon the Aqeedah of the Ashairah, they're upon the Aqeedah of the Maturidiyah, they're upon the Aqeedah of the Mufawwidah. Those individuals who come to you and they say, Allah mentions these names and attributes about Himself, but we cannot compare Allah to creation. Agreed? That's okay. But then they say, we cannot even affirm the word being mentioned. We have to leave it absolutely to Allah. So when Allah says, yes, eyes, Ahlul Sunnah say, we affirm Allah has eyes. Details, description, how, what, all of that. We don't know and we don't delve into anything resembling to us in creation. Not whatsoever. But we affirm Allah has eyes because Allah tells us He has eyes. They say no. The Mufawwidah, they say no. And they exist now. This example will give because they exist now. These graduates of Darul Uloom, they'll come and tell you this Aqeedah. They say no. Allah says He has eyes. We cannot affirm that Allah has eyes <coughs> because we do not know what that means and we have to leave that purely to Allah whatever that means whatever it means we leave it purely to Allah you might start getting confused isn't that what we just said what did we just say though he said we, still affirm it. we affirm what's being mentioned but then the descriptions and the details, like we've just said, in creation you can use the same word and there can be different details. So with using that word for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, of course it's going to be something completely different, not comparable to creation in any way. But we know Allah has eyes. They say, no, we don't know that. We can't say that. Allah says He has eyes, but we have absolutely no understanding or comprehension of what that could mean so we can't affirm Allah has eyes that is false because that then in essence means what it means is that the word has no meaning the word has no meaning it's like somebody talks to you in your language that you understand and then in the middle of the sentence throws in a word from some other language that you don't understand. The whole sentence you will understand except that one word which will only be a sound to you. A word from a foreign language that you don't understand, it is nothing more than a sound. Anybody speak, anybody from Senegal or uh, Gambia here? It just came to my mind to give this example right now. My roommate used to be from Senegal and Gambia. So how do you say yes? No, no. Which language are you talking? Wow. wow. Tell me the real one. So you say wow. 
Is that slang? No, wow is wow. Hard is mandingo. Uh-huh, okay, okay. So we'll stick with the wow. Because everybody knows wow. Yeah. So now, for example, before you knew that, before you knew that, if the brother was talking to you and you were conversing, and in the middle of that conversation, you said something to him, and instead of him saying yes, yes, he accidentally said wow. For you, that would just be a a sound that you've heard from him that has no meaning for you. It's a sound you've heard from him that has no meaning for you. That's what a foreign word is. You hear the sound, but have absolutely no idea what it means. That is basically the mufawwidah. Allah says he has eyes. We read that word. We can hear that word. We can say the word. But it means absolutely nothing, nothing to us. That is their aqidah. Dar al-ulum, they come out, that's their aqidah. That's what they get taught. These names and attributes have absolutely no meaning for us. It may as well be a foreign word that has absolutely no meaning to us. We just leave that to Allah. Whatever that is, Allah knows. We don't know. That then means that Allah, if that aqidah is correct, that Allah has placed words in the Quran that to us have absolutely no meaning in that sense. This isn't the same as Alif Lam Ra and Alif Lam Mim, etc. Those the scholars have said are there from the miracles of the Quran to show that the Arabs at that time who were the strongest in their language in Arabic, yet despite being the top in Arabic language and the most skilled in Arabic language, they still couldn't work out what's going on here. So the Quran was superior to them. Yet they were supposed to be the most superior in Arabic. That was as a miracle of the Quran. The rest of these now, all of these names and attributes, it would mean that they are put in there as simply sounds that have absolutely no meaning for us. And that is false. We say the details and the descriptions of the names and attributes of Allah we may not know. But the fact that Allah has affirmed these in the Quran, we affirm them. Allah affirms he has eyes. We affirm Allah has eyes. Details, descriptions, how? Allahu A'lam. Allah says he has some other description, whatever it may be, the face we were talking about before, we affirm. But we don't know imagination, how, detailed description, don't know. But the fact that Allah has mentioned this, we are going to affirm it. We're not going to say that's just a sound we have no meaning of and no understanding of. It's just a foreign word to us. Just a few days ago, in one of the cities in Leeds, we were doing a lecture. Recently in Leeds, we just finished doing a book in Aqidah, Lum'atul I'tiqad, a book in the Aqidah of Ahlul Sunnah wal Jama'ah. So we were teaching that book and we were going through that book and reading the explanation of Sheikh Zayd al-Madkhali, Rahimahullah Ta'ala, going through the principles of the names and attributes, basically what we've mentioned there in a bit more detail over a few weeks. So this, the news that there are a group of Salafis in Leeds teaching the Salafi Aqidah, the Aqidah of Ahl Sunnah, news got to some of these individuals and there's been, as it was reported, rumblings for a while, amongst some of the, whichever community it is, the Diobandi Tablighi, whichever community, the Darul Ulum community. Until this Sunday, they could take it no longer, and a representative came to the class. <laughs> and he said, at the end of the class, he put his hand up, he began to talk, and he began by saying, you people, you know that there are so many mistakes in Ash-Shaykh al-Uthaymeen's explanation of al-Wasatiyah. There are so many, he's talking about what we've just been talking about, the principles of names and attributes. There are so many mistakes in al-Wasatiyah and contradictions between it and al-Aqidah al-Tahawiyah. Because they, strange as it is, accept al-Aqidah al-Tahawiyah with their misunderstood interpretations and explanations, of course. Because the reality of the explanation of al-Tahawiyah, it is Sunni, Salafi. 
So he says there are great mistakes between Al-Aqidah Al-Wasatiyah and Al-Aqidah Al-Tahawiyah. And then after a few more minutes of this, that, the other, we challenge you to come with your books and everything. And we will bring our superiors and our mashayikh. Been watching too many of the Hassan, Abdurrahman Hassan videos <laughs> on YouTube. Bring your books and bring what you want and we will bring our books and bring our mashayikh. And then we had to say to him, calm down. There was an elderly uncle in the audience. He said to him upon the old way of doing things, Alhamdulillah, it's good. He said, brother, wait, stand up, introduce yourself first. So he stood up. He says, my name is what his name was. He says, my name is such and such, and I am an alim. <laughs> my name is such and this is a, a true story. This is not just for jokes. I'm telling you, this is the reality of the world right now. He says, my name is such and such, and I am an alim. I am an alim. Uh, and then he goes on to explain his ilm. He says, I have graduated from Dar al-Uloom, the six-year alim course. I am an alim. So I thought, okay, if that is the case, you have started this, this confrontation today. You've come here for that purpose by mentioning there are contradictions between Tahawiyah and Wasatiyah in this issue of names and attributes. And now you've told me you're an alim. If that is the case, then it should be a lot easier the process to discuss the contradictions and the affairs relating to the aqidah of uh, the aqidah wasatiyah and aqidah tahawiyah in Arabic. Since both of those books are written in Arabic, the discussion and when you talk about names and attributes, it is far simpler in the original Arabic. To explain in English and talk about ta'atil and ta'harif and all these things, it's more complicated without a doubt. So we said, khalas, in that case, alim, we'll talk in Arabic. So then I began in Arabic. Then he says, no, 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 the people don't understand, etc. He said, no problem, it doesn't matter about them, you want to debate me, we'll talk now. So we began talking, and then he says, no, no, why are you trying to belittle me in front of everyone? I said, Akhi, you are the alim. I, in my life, I've never said I'm alim. You're bigger than me. You are alim. And he says, no, you're belittling me and you couldn't do it. The aqidah that they want to propose, that they want to push forward and he wanted to push forward that night is the aqidah of the mufawwidah. They say, you Salafis, you say Allah has eyes and Allah has a hand. You Salafis say Allah has these body parts. We don't say that. The correct aqidah of Ahl Sunnah. Allah doesn't have any of these. We don't know what they mean. The aqidah of the mufawwidah. Rather, the aqidah of the mufawwidah is false. It is not to say when Allah says he has eyes, we say we have absolutely no idea what the word ayn means. But we do have an idea of what the word ayn means. It has some recognition amongst us. The details we don't know. So you must understand these points carefully. Because all of the, the, that type of thinking... Darul Ulum and all of these individuals on that type of uh, pathway, the issue is in Aqidah. You might say, okay, well, what's your differences with them? And they will say, La ilaha illallah, and everybody's Muslim. They pray five times a day, they do Jum'ah, they do Eid. What's your problem with them? We say, start from the roots of Aqidah and you'll start discovering what the problems are. The roots in Aqidah, <coughs> your belief in Allah. What do you believe regarding Allah? Allah tells us in the Quran about his names and attributes. Do you affirm them? No. Straight away you can start seeing what the differences are. You can start recognizing and understanding. Talking about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Knowledge of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the greatest form of knowledge. The greatest form of knowledge is talking about Allah. So if a group of people cannot accurately talk about our creator about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala they cannot accurately talk about Allah they do not recognize the reality of the aqidah of the salaf of Muhammad sallallahu and what he taught us they do not recognize that then what do you expect of the difference between them and Ahl Sunnah and that is why the Prophet sallallahu alayhi said this ummah was split into 73 sects, all of them in the fire except one. 
قالوا من هي يا رسول الله قال ما أنا عليه اليوم وأصحابي they said who is that one O messenger he said that which I am upon today my companions that one aqida one pathway one true understanding there isn't multiple aqida like the ikhwanis and al-maghrib and everybody will try and tell you they'll say okay we agreed to that but what's the big deal they want to believe that we can't affirm these you want to believe you do affirm them What's the big deal? You still all go to the mosque, you pray five times a day, you say la ilaha illallah. So they don't want to affirm those, you do want to affirm them, what's the big deal? <coughs> what is the big deal? It's not the same belief the Prophet Because the Prophet left only one true pathway to paradise. As Ibn Qayyim said, At-Tariq the path to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is one. You cannot claim to have different aqidah and still be united. Unity only occurs upon one aqidah, one methodology. You cannot say you can affirm it if you want, I don't affirm it, but we're all Muslims. That means one party is lying upon Allah. Phrase it that way if it makes it easier for you. Allah has told us and taught us and we've been taught to affirm the names and attributes of Allah. Somebody comes along and says, no, we can't. That is now a lie upon Allah. It is a lie upon the aqidah of Ahlul Sunnah. So how can that be the case? How can that be the case? It cannot be the case. There is only one true aqidah that every Muslim needs to be upon and what is called to. That's why the Prophet ﷺ spent all of those years in Mecca when the revelation first came, those 13 years, preaching purely on aqidah and tawheed. Aqidah and tawheed, fasting and prayer, and zakat, and hajj, when did they even become obligatory? Right at the end, they started becoming obligatory. From after a decade later, after the Prophet ﷺ became a prophet. He became a prophet at the age of 40. The prayer, the second pillar of Islam, didn't even come until he was approximately 50 years old. So for the first 10 years of prophethood, what was he preaching to everybody if even the prayer hadn't come yet, let alone the fasting and the zakat and the hajj. What was being taught to everybody then? Only one pillar of Islam was there. The only thing that was being taught was aqidah and tawheed. Imagine that, a decade, and not even the prayer, the zakat, the sawm, the hajj, those issues are not even the issues yet. For a decade it was just aqidah and tawheed. That is what differentiates between the people. That is what caused the splitting of the Ummah that the Prophet ﷺ mentioned. The people, they strayed away from that one aqidah. They strayed away from the teachings and the understanding of the Salaf. When it comes to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, understanding the names and attributes. When it comes to issues of Iman increasing and decreasing. When it comes to issues of the Sahaba and our stance towards them. The issue of the decree. And some saying we have no choice, others saying we have absolute choice. And Allah doesn't even know what we're going to do until we do it. The ghulat of the qadariyah from before. Those are the affairs of aqidah that caused the splitting in the people. That is what caused the groups to move away. So do not fall for this al-maghrib and ikhwani type of speech. Everybody's Muslim, we're all okay. How can you all be okay? There are groups of Muslims who do not understand who Allah is. They don't understand who Allah is. They negate and reject the names and attributes of Allah. And you're going to say it's okay. You can believe that about Allah if you want. I'll believe what I want. We're all good. That is not the case. That's why the Prophet said, All of them are in the fire, those other sects. Meaning they are all deserving of the fire. They are all deserving of the fire because of the deviances away. From the Quran and the Sunnah and the pure understanding. And only that one sect, Al-Ta'ifatul Mansura, the aided and saved sect up until the day of judgment, 
They are the ones who strive upon that one correct, true aqidah. That which the Prophet ﷺ gave us, that which the Sahaba were upon, and that which was taught generation after generation until it came to us today. They ask about al-uluhiyyah, al-asma'u wa sifat al-rububiyyah. They say, these things you talk about, where did that exist amongst the Salaf? Did the Salaf ever mention al-uluhiyyah and al-asma'u wa sifat and al-rububiyyah? Did the Salaf ever mention these words? Or was it Ibn Taymiyyah who made them up 700 years later? What are you going to say? They understood it, so there was no need. They mentioned it. They mentioned it? Where? Who? Correct. The Salaf did mention these terms. They did. Al-Imam Abu Hanifa, the perfect example for them. Al-Imam Abu Hanifa, who was born in 80 Hijri. He was, he was born when their companions were still alive. He died in 150, meaning he was 30 years old when the last companion died. He was the age of most of us here. 30, around about 30 years old when the companions were still alive. They just passed away finally when he was 30 years old. Even though he never met any of them, but he was alive at that same time. He mentioned Al-Uluhiyyah in Al-Fiqh, Al-Akbar, that famous book. He mentioned, لَيْسَ مِنْ وَصْفِ الْأُولُوهِيَّةِ أَنْ min al asfal. It is not from the characteristics of Al-Uluhiyyah, the word Al-Uluhiyyah, to make dua to Allah downwards. Meaning the correct aqidah is that Allah is above, yet the Darul Ulum Alimu comes out. They want to debate with you, ain't Allah? Where is Allah? And the Imam which they claim upon their lies to follow, he is telling you there, it is not from the characteristic of the uluhiyah, of the oneness of worship to Allah, that you make dua to Allah down. Rather, you make dua to Allah <coughs> up and above. Allah is above the creation. So, the purpose of all of that was as a reminder, as a reminder uh, into this topic, into this chapter that we're going to go into now, which is the statement of Allah, لِمَا خَلَقْتُ What I created with my two hands. Allah tells us of what He created with His two hands. And that is referring to the creation of who? Adam alayhi salam. When Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created Adam alayhi salam. هَذِهِ جُمْلَ مِنْ آيَةٍ أَطْوَلْ When Allah created Adam alayhi salam, He commanded the angels to prostrate to Adam. وَكَانَ مِنْ بَيْنِهِمْ وَلَيْسَ مِنْهُمْ إِبْلِيسِ And amongst the angels, even though he himself was not an angel, was, for his nobility then, Iblis. He was amongst the angels, despite not being from the angels. كَانَ مَعَهُمْ لَكِنَّهُ لَيْسَ مِنْهُمْ سَجَدَ الْمَلَائِكَةِ كُلُّهُمْ أَجْمَعُونَ إِلَّا إِبْلِيسَ أَبَا أَنْ يَسْجُدُ all of the angels they prostrated, but Iblis, who was there in amongst them, refused to prostrate to Adam. In the ayat mentions, Illa Iblisa kana min al an amri except Iblis, he was from the jinn and he transgressed away from the command of his Lord, transgressed out. Traversed out, meaning sinned against the command of his Lord. And that, the scholars they say, is the first time or the source of the disease of 
envy, arrogance, everything, no doubt too. But one of the main ones they mention is envy. Because it was out of envy that Iblis refused to prostrate to Adam. Hence, as Shaykh Al-Fawzan said, the source of envy comes from Iblis himself. Envying someone, having envy of what somebody has been blessed with, and you have not, that is a source, or it is from the source of Iblis himself. As is murder. Murder, killing, the source of that is from Iblis. How? How? The sons of Adam, السلام, it was the whisperings of Iblis that caused that killing, that murder. So Iblis was the first and the source of murder, as is the source of kufr. Yes, in this incident in of itself, but on top of that, with the Jews, that they desired the final messenger should come from their lineage and their progeny, yet he came from the Arabs, and from their envy and hatred, etc., kufr, disbelief, refusal to accept the message from Iblis again. So many of these affairs, the source of them is Iblis. So here it mentions that he refused to prostrate. لِأَنَّ الْجِنَّ الْأَصْلِ فِيهِمْ The jinn, it is mentioned that the origin in the jinn, the type of default in the jinn is that they are rebellious. Not that they are obedient. Whereas the angels, the default and the absolute is that they are <coughs> obedient. So the jinn, the sheikh says, the origin with the jinn is that they are in origin rebellious. Of course we know that still amongst the jinn there are Muslims, obedient, upon the worship of Allah, go and do hajj, everything. We know that. You read the, the biographies of the salaf, how the jinn used to attend their classes, it's mentioned in some of their biographies. That famous one of Ibn Uyayna or uh, Athori, one of the two, one of the Sufyans. Ibn Uyayna, I believe. When he was giving a lesson, he was talking about the 73 sects, the hadith and that issue, and talking about the different groups and the khawarij and this one and that one. It's mentioned in his biography, at the end of the lesson, a jinni came to him and said, he said, oh Imam, you know, what you were talking about in your class, about you humans, you've got the khawarij sect, and you've got the rafid, and you've got this one and that one. Us, the jinn, we have those same groups, you know, in the jinn. There are khawarij, and there are rafid, and this one and that one. Mentioned in his biography, a jinni came to him and said this to him. So the jinn, they have obedient and Muslim, and they have sinners and kuffar and disobedient. So here Iblis, in his origin, is from the jinn. And so he refused to prostrate. When he refused to prostrate, it's mentioned in the Quran that he is asked, مَا مَنَعَكَ أَن تَسْجُدَ لِمَا خَلَقْتُ بِيَدَيَّ what caused you, what prevented you from prostrating to what I created with my own two hands? <coughs> Allah saying to him, what prevented you from prostrating to that, meaning Adam, that I created with my own two hands? Qal Iblis says, Ana khayrum minhu. I am better than him. Iblis replied, I am better than him. You created me from fire. And yet you created him from clay. So I am superior to him. You created me from fire. And you created him from clay. So his claim was that I am superior to him. So his reasoning or the cause was his arrogance and his haughtiness and his envy of Adam. That Adam, who he believes is lesser than him, why should he prostrate to him? Even though some of the scholars like Sheikh Abdurrahman Sa'di, in his tafsir of this, 
He said his claim was actually incorrect anyway. Because fire is not necessarily superior to clay and soil. How so? You may think fire is superior, powerful fire, as opposed to the soil. However, he mentioned if you were to put a fire on, put some wood together and start a fire on top of some grass. When you, the fire burns out, completely burns out to nothing, what will occur underneath where the fire was? That patch of soil will be burnt out. You try to plant something in there, nothing will grow in that, that year. Burnt out all of the, the nutrition, everything is burnt out from that patch where that fire was burning. That piece of soil will be dead. But come back next year for your harvest and plant some seeds. All of a sudden you'll see that patch has now become green and everything again. It's not dead completely. However, the other way around, you build a fire and you put the soil on top of the fire. Not the fire on top of the soil. When you put the fire on top of the soil, burns the soil out. But a year later that soil will be ripe again. You can use it again. And it doesn't do anything to it. But the other way around, the fire is burning and you come and put a bucket of soil over it. The fire will be extinguished and finished. Come back as many times as you want for the next 50 years. It will never turn on by itself again. Dead, gone. The soil has destroyed the fire. Whereas the fire could only temporarily harm the soil. So in that way, in reality, soil and clay is more powerful than fire. Earth is more powerful than fire in that way. So some of the scholars said his reasoning was not actually accurate anyway. But nevertheless, that was his reasoning. So it was his arrogance and his haughtiness. وَكَانَ فِي عِلْمِ اللَّهِ تَعَالَىٰ أَنَّهُ كَافِرْ فَقَدْ اسْتَكْبَرَ وَأَبَىٰ قَالْ Iblis goes on to say, أَأَسْجُدُ لِمَنْ خَلَقْتَ طِينَا Shall I prostrate to the one you created from clay? فَقَالَ اللَّهُ تَعَالَىٰ مَا مَنَعَكَ أَن تَسْجُدَ لِمَا خَلَقْتُ بِيَدَيَّا so the point here is Allah said to him, what prevented you from prostrating to the one that I created with my two hands, therefore affirming the attribute of hands to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And there are many narrations, uh, they will be mentioned throughout this chapter regarding the hands of Allah. The famous hadith you will have heard of, it will probably come later on, on the day of judgment, how all of the heavens and the earth will be wrapped up into the <coughs> hands of Allah and upon the fingers of Allah, those narrations. We affirm therefore that Allah has hands. Do we know what they look like, what the descriptions are, are they comparable to anything in creation, can we have an imagination of them? The answer to all of that is no, but we affirm Allah has hands because Allah in the Quran in his own speech told us that he has hands that is the way of Ahlul Sunnah as opposed to Ahlul Bid'ah who say Allah says hands Allahu A'lam what this word hands could possibly mean who knows what hands means the Shaykh says to the Mufawwidah there is the hadith about the man who was traveling with his camel out in the desert, by himself, deserted, alone, vast desert. On his journey, he sits down to take a break or something, uh, and the camel somehow gets loose and runs away. So now the man realizes he's finished. All his water, all his food, all his provisions, his ability to ride on the camel and get through the desert, everything depended on after Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala upon the camel. Camel has gone, it's taken his ride, the camel itself, taken its food, taken its water, taken the shade from the sun, even everything. The camel was his means, the means of survival in the desert. It's gone. So then it mentions in the narration in the end, he thinks that's it, this is the end. There's no way he can walk across the desert and get out himself without the camel. No food, no water, no shade, no nothing. So then he finds some sort of tree, sits down on the tree, waiting for death. There's nothing to be done. 
He doesn't believe there is any way of escape now, any way to get across this desert now without the camel and the water and everything there. Sits down waiting for death. Then as he's there waiting for death, then all of a sudden from the distance, the camel that had fled and gone ends up coming back to where he was. Sees his camel, goes and grasps his camel. Comes back, gone wandering, disappeared. Hours, whenever it was later, it so happens, the camel comes back to where he was and he catches it. So then from his overjoy, his, his huge amount of happiness, one moment he was sat there waiting for death, to starve and, and die of thirst, that's what he was waiting for. Next minute he realizes that Allah has given him back life. He will live from his joy and happiness at finding the opportunity to live and he's not going to die now. He says, Oh Allah, indeed, you are my slave and I am your Lord. Why did he say that? Because of his high level of happiness, he's just survived now. He thought he was about to die. Finished. Then he realizes I'm alive. From his level of joy, he accidentally twisted the words without realizing. He meant to say, Oh Allah, you are my Lord and I am indeed your servant and slave. From his joy, he wanted to praise Allah. Oh Allah, you are my servant and uh, you are my uh, Lord and I am your slave. From joy. From such joy, he twisted the words by accident and he said, Allah, you are my servant and I am your Lord. Without realizing in the narration it mentions that Allah is mentions the attribute again, the names and attributes that Allah is overjoyed or or laughs. In some narrations it mentions Yadhak that Allah laughs in this narration, in other narrations about the two men who kill each other, both end up in paradise, Allah laughs. As Shaykh al-Hameen says, these people who say that we don't, the, the mufawwida, we don't know what these words mean. So now in the narration he says, Allah laughs at these two individuals. They're going to say to you, we have absolutely no idea what that word means. It may as well, it may as well have been that everywhere where names and attributes are mentioned, it could have just been left <coughs> blank. Could have just been left blank. Means absolutely nothing to them as they claim. So that is incorrect. That's a fine point that they will try to deviate you upon. But it's incorrect. We say we affirm, we affirm the names and attributes, but we don't go into thinking about them and imagining them and details and those affairs. That's what we'll round off for today then. We'll carry on with the next section, which is still on this issue now of the hands of Allah. Next week, inshallah ta'ala, going into some of the details about that. And then uh, some of the narrations about it. Uh, and there are a few, quite a few narrations about the hands of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So we'll carry on next week, inshallah, straight after Isha once again. Any questions? Can the jinn see humans? These types of questions... You know the scholars always say, what's the fruits? So you tell us first what benefit you're going to get from knowing if the jinn can see you or not. If you can tell us. No, this is true. This is true. Sometimes you ask a question and the intent behind it may be no issue, no issue. But is there really, what is really the benefit, the fruits of that question. Typically the answer is yes. Of course the answer is yes because it's in the Quran. But the point is there are certain questions sometimes where there's no it's like the example we gave about Isa at the conference and before here. Is Isa a companion or not? It doesn't matter because Isa is superior to that anyway. So these types of issues they're not really issues that jinn questions generally. Jinn questions generally. They are talked about, you do find certain speech of the scholars, even things like the topic of can jinn marry humans? 
There is some speech of the scholars regarding these topics. But it's rarely what you're going to discuss on a Saturday night here in Cheatham Hill. <laughs> Can a jinn marry a, hu- a human and things? Not really the types of topics that are going to go into detail. Uh, and you're going to discuss. Because there are a lot more yet we need to go through. In aqidah, in the names and attributes, etc. Until you get to some of those finer points. But though, generally though, it does mention in the Quran that the jinn can see us. And the homework is for everybody to find the ayah in the Quran that proves that. You're going to have to do it. <laughs> when they what? They do what? How? <laughs> and they raise their hand. Uh, there is one narration, but we'll come to it later on about that type of thing. About uh, pointing at something. But generally, no. Because you don't want to uh, leave some misunderstanding to the people of comparison. So you wouldn't say that Allah has, and then you point it to your hands or your eyes and things like that. Generally, no. For the, for the, you wouldn't confuse the people in that way of thinking there's resemblance or comparison. But there is one narration about it, maybe later towards the end of the book, we'll come to that topic in more detail. Anything else? <coughs> That's a different narration about Allah laughs at the two men, they killed each other, or, or uh, one killed the other, but both are going to be in paradise. How come? One murders the other one, yet both are going to be in paradise. The first one was murdered, he was killed in the path of Allah, Shaheed, paradise. The other one, how is he in paradise? He was a kafir at the time and he killed the Muslim, so the Muslim in paradise. How does the kafir end up in paradise? Later on he became a Muslim and entered into paradise. So the killer and the killed both end up in paradise. He mentions in the narration, Allah laughs at the two individuals, that one is the killer, one is the killed, yet both end up in paradise by the mercy of Allah. So the Muhammad, would they say, you say that they, they just don't, they... Don't, they say the meaning doesn't have any. It doesn't have any meaning. Does it, are they? Would they negate? Would they say no. We negate the attribute. No, they don't. That's the thing. That's why it's slight with them. They say we affirm, we accept the names and attributes of Allah. We accept the names and attributes of Allah. Then he said to them, okay, Ain Yad. They say, but Ain Yad. These things we make tafwil of the meanings to Allah. We accept. We accept, but. We have no idea what it is or what it means, and it's all to Allah what that means. It's a level outside of the level of Ahl Sunnah. They are, they are trying to claim they accept, but then when we push them and you say, what are you accepting then? What are you accepting then if you're telling us these words are just sounds to you that mean nothing? <coughs> they are sounds that mean nothing. So what are you accepting? The sound? Just the sound of the word? So they, are, they, are, they have fallen a level outside. They are a level outside. They claim to accept, but the reality when you break it up, they're not accepting anything that means. Because they, they believe this is a blank space. So what are you accepting in reality? So they won't say we negate. They'll say we accept. But that's the deception. When you push into it, they're not really accepting anything. Is it like they accept the word, but then reject any connotation that comes from that word whatsoever? Sort of, basically. They say, Tafweedul ma'ana illallah. They accept the word, but as, as we said, word. as a sound. It's just a sound. That's how Shaykh Uthameen explains it. Shaykh Uthameen says they are only accepting the word as a sound. Because they're saying there is absolutely no meaning we understand of this word. That is to Allah. So really all they are accepting is the sound of the word. Yet, Allah has an attribute. The sound of the word of the attribute is yad. What it means, absolutely no idea what that is. Can't even translate it as hand. So they're a level out. It's not a sunnah to do so. There is no sunnah to kiss the mushaf. So if, you, if that happens by accident, you pick it up, etc. And with respect, you look after the mushaf. But there's no thing about kissing it or kissing it when you're going to finish it and put it back. How do you understand um, the angels being ordered to um, take sujood to Adam? That's okay, because this is now uh, uh, Allah commanding the angels to prostrate to Adam. 
How can that be understood when prostration is an act of worship and worship is only for Allah? So how come Allah is telling the angels to do a worship to Adam? That's basically the question. That's because prostration isn't exclusively worship. There are forms of prostration that are not in their very nature ibadah. For example, the obvious example, the time of Yusuf alayhi salam. At the time of Yusuf salam in the Quran, it says all of his family there prostrated. prostrated. And that was not a prostration of worship. It was a prostration of respect and honor. Respect and honor. That's why in the time of the Prophet ﷺ when Mu'adh ibn Jabal, I believe Mu'adh ibn Jabal, when he went to Yemen and those areas and he came back and he said, O Messenger of Allah, those people there, they're big heads. When, when the big heads come and the, the, the laymen, as we say, they bow to the big heads out of respect. Not worship, not ibadah, but out of respect. Like the courtesy thing and all that business. They do that out of respect. So should we not? And he did it. So then the Prophet ﷺ told him, it's impermissible, haram. That type of prostration or bowing, which is just purely respect, no worship or ibadah to the person, used to be allowed at the time of Yusuf salam. Not a worship, bowing or prostration, respect. In this sharia, even that excuse or justification for bowing to anybody is illegitimate. You cannot bow or prostrate to anyone else except Allah. But those types where it was just respect was allowed in those days. In this example of the angels, it is not a prostration of ibadah to Adam salam. It is a prostration of ibadah to Allah. Fulfilling the command Allah has given them to prostrate to him just for nobility for Adam. That's what it was. Nobility, ikram for Adam So their ibadah was to Allah. And we know that because when Iblis didn't do it, he committed kufr. So the ibadah was not to Adam It's not a prostration of worship to him. It was ibadah to Allah, a prostration by the command of Allah as a means of nobility Allah gave to Adam salam, And that's all it was. Well, I thought you were going to say, before. The, forget the past nations, but if the prayer was established on the night journey, which was when? The night of Al-Isra'ul Mi'raj. Difference of opinion, but the earliest date you're going to get is 10th or 3 years before the Hijrah. Which means the Prophet ﷺ was at the minimum 50 years old when the night of Al-Isra'ul Mi'raj happened. So he had been a Prophet for at least 10 years when the prayer first came down. For the first 10 years, were they not praying then? Some of the scholars, they say there was a prayer. There was something known as a prayer. It wasn't in the form of the prayer like we have now, five obligatory prayers, these raka'at and everything. But they had a form of prayer. There was some form of salah. Some scholars say it was the night prayer, what you call tahajjud now. They used to have the tahajjud. They used to do that. Not the five obligatory, how we do it, etc. So there was some form of prayer. And that narration we mentioned recently as well, about when one of the mushrikeen saw Muhammad come out to the Kaaba at Dhuhr time. It says in the narration, he comes out, he looks up at the sun, sees it into Dhuhr time, Starts praying. Another boy comes and lines up behind him or next to him uh, or behind him. And a woman comes and lines up behind him. And the mushrik says at that time in that narration, these are the only three people I know upon this religion. And they were praying. Muhammad Ali and Khadija radiallahu anhum. So that must have been when? Way before 10th year of Hijrah. That was in the first year, right at the beginning. Right at the beginning. So there was some form of prayer they used to do. But just not in the, in the fashion that we have it now. And in the previous nations, they had their forms of worship, whichever way their forms of worship were. Fasting, for example, we know fasting was prescribed upon all nations. How exactly? The same as ours, Allah Alam. But they had their different forms of worship that they were uh, legislated upon them. Um, you mentioned that the murder, the origin goes back to shaitan because he whispered 
to the son mm. of Adam السلام, then can we not then say that the origin of all evil, every sin goes back to shaitan because he uh, technically, technically you can say so all sins, the source of them all is from the shaitan, possibly you could say it is the whisperings of the shaitan but then scholars may talk about the evil of the souls etc and other things as well but some of these like murder, envy murder, envy and kufr Sheikh al-Fawzan mentioned those three specifically the source of them is directly from Iblis murder, envy and kufr the source of them is directly from Iblis himself What's the default in humans? The default in humans in terms of our fitrah, the natural disposition, that much we can answer, that much we know. That is because of the narration of Ibn Abbas in Bukhari. Kana bayna Adam wa Nuh alayhim as-salam ashrata qurun kulluhum ala tawheed. In Bukhari, the... Uh, between Adam and Nuh, he says, there were ten generations of people. All of them were upon pure, completely tawheed. There was no shirk. So from the beginning when Adam salam was created, and then the offsprings began and the generations began, ten generations down, approximately a thousand years, the scholars will say, Qarn is equivalent to a hundred in the language. So for the first thousand years, the first ten generations of people, they were all upon Tawheed. So the default of mankind is to be upon the Tawheed of Allah. The default of mankind is to be upon that Aqeedah. It's maybe a bit different to is the default sin or obedience, but still, if the default is Tawheed and Aqeedah, then the default is obedience from the beginning. It was only after the 10th generation that the sinning began and the, the, uh, the uh, move away from Tawheed into Shirk at the time of Nuh salam began. So you could say that in Aqeedah books they always mention this point as well. The origin of mankind is Tawheed, not as the philosophers and those people say. I think Abu Iyad mentioned it in his talk. No. That the default is not, as they say, another. They say, humankind was born not knowing. They had to investigate, look around, trees, sun, moon, they have to look and investigate and discover that they have a creator and go into worship. That is false. Mankind is born upon that innate understanding of their Lord and of their worship to Him. And in the hadith, every newborn is born upon that natural disposition, natural state of worship to Allah. And that's why the scholars used to give an example as well. They say people these days who say they are atheists, they say they are atheists. Some of the scholars used to mention this example. One of the teachers. People who say they are atheists, atheist, atheist, atheist. Don't believe in God. Now all of a sudden one day they're on a plane. Mid-flight something happens, the plane is crashing. From their insides, from default the words that come out of many of their mouths is, Oh my God, what are you talking about? Which God? You said you're atheist. But from their natural feeling, from when they've been born, a recognition of a creator. Atheist, atheist, promoting and screaming and shouting and university and all these things. On the plane, crashing in that moment, from the inside it comes out, oh my God! Because even though they claim one thing from their outside, the inner state is something different. And that's why even Fir'aun, even Fir'aun, Despite him saying to them, Ana al-a'la. I am your Lord the Most High. He claimed to be their Lord, but inside, as the Quran mentions, he knew. He knew that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala was his creator. Go on. Let's finish with the story. Story from the da'wah store. You tell it The atheist was. He's shouting and a bit swearing. Then he comes to Ahmed at the end and he's talking about the Big Bang. So Ahmed said, what came before that? He said, God knows. <laughs> <laughs> See, that's a good one. That's a good one. 
We're going to have to do it on the mic for the benefit of the sisters too. So on the da'wah stall, an atheist came and was discussing with the brothers. Atheist claims no God, talking about Big Bang, etc. It was the Big Bang and everything else. So one of the brothers says to him, well, what came before the Big Bang? You claim it's no God, no nothing. It's all science and Big Bang. What came before the Big Bang? He says, God knows. <laughs> yes, he is the atheist trying to build his all, whole argument against you that there is no God in his Big Bang. See, this is what they talk about, the natural disposition in their hearts. Every human is born upon recognizing their Lord, recognizing they have a creator. Then they force themselves atheist and no God and this and that and everything else. Alright, we'll conclude there then. Carry on next week, inshallah, after Isha. Wa sallallahu alayhi wa sallam.